Welcome to episode 65 of the Cake Watch podcast, which is a podcast about Brexit seen from the perspective of uh, people who live and work in Belgium, in Brussels, um, working with the EU. My name is Chris Kendall. I am an EU official working for the EU institutions for the last God knows how many years, but uh, it's not important. I'm, I'm doing this podcast in a strictly personal capacity. And Steve isn't with me this week, uh, but instead is John Worth. John Worth uh, of great fame in the EU Twitter sphere. Um, John is somebody who has actually been on the podcast before. We had you on. We did a kind of vox pop with you, didn't we, Um, in in a very early episode. But for some inexplicable reason, we have not had you on as a guest. I don't know why that is. Um, So it's really long overdue. Um, We've known each other for, I think, about 10 years now. Uh, we got to know each other initially through Twitter, didn't we, when we were both in London. Um, but now um, you're in Berlin um, and I'm back in Brussels. And um, right, why don't you introduce yourself rather than me doing it? Okay, so uh, my name is John Worth. Um, I've been living in Berlin for the past six years. Before that, I was in Copenhagen, London, Brussels uh, and a few other places. Um, I'm a self-employed communications consultant and blogger. Um, and I teach EU politics uh, at the College of European Bruges, um, the University of Maastricht, uh, and in Aix-en-Provence. So um, I'm basically um, about as much of an EU nerd as you are, Chris, essentially. I think that's actually doing yourself down. I think you're probably more of an EU nerd than me. Yeah. I, a different you, kind of you, you, you have more institutional experience. I've seen it more from the outside, maybe. Let's leave it at yeah. that. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but that's, that's not the only string to your bow. You're also um, a massive railway nerd which I have only the hugest respect for. Well, um, that's, But uh, also, yeah, go on. Yeah, well, exactly. That, that's essentially by being politically a green and um, living in Berlin and working very often in Brussels. So therefore, um, that, that's out of need and political persuasion, essentially. But yeah, I do rant about trains quite a bit online as well. <laughs> um, and, that brings, and then that brings me to the other bit um, that's important um, that people should know about you, which is that you are um, not only an activist, but you're also politically... Um, you're, you're a politician. Would you call yourself that? Uh, I don't know at the moment. I, I did try to get um, um, elected for the German Green Party uh, to try to get a position in the European Parliament for the German Greens. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't successful uh, at the European elections in that, but I still do party politics. So I'm, I'm, I'm deputy chair now of the Bundesarbeitsgemeinschaft Europa of the Green Party. So that's basically the EU committee of the German Green Party. So um, I'm trying to kind of um, uh, improve the German Green Party's EU politics. Let's put it that way. I think that makes you a politician. Maybe. I think so. Wanna, yeah. Wanna, yeah, wannabe, wannabe, something like that. And you were, um, when, when you were in the UK, you were involved with the Labour Party, weren't you? Exactly. So that's also part of the thing that we'll talk about as well this evening is essentially I, I've been basically looking at British politics from afar uh, in terms of Brexit and then leading me to the current, uh, current general election. But yeah, I spent, um, uh, I spent more than 15 years of my life somehow as, as a member of the uh, British Labour Party. And then when I moved to Berlin in 2013, I thought it was time for a change and so quit and joined the German Greens. Um, so... I think I do something which is quite rare, which is I have a lot of party political experience in two completely different parties and completely different European election systems and different countries. Um, mm. and, and that's quite unusual for anyone to have really done that. Yeah. And yes, it is. I think that's actually a really interesting 
um, things to have in your on your CV, isn't it? Really, I mean, that, that does make you rather unique. The thing is, is that it's, it's very important. I think also when we come to speaking about the British election, is that if any British politicians have experience of another of another electoral system, it's that they've gone to the United States, particularly Labour politicians, and have gone and worked for Obama for a while. Very few have ever gone and seen how a mainstream political party or in France or Germany works. And there are enormous differences. And actually, I, I think I'm even more convinced the British election system needs reforming now having seen how the German one works up close than I was before I, I had that experience yeah. of Germany. Well, we have lots to talk about. But um, so, I mean, last um, the last episode that we recorded, um, Steve and I talked a lot about tactical voting. And um, we mentioned your guide to tactical voting on your blog and put a link to it in the episode notes. Um, now, the week, the election's a week away. Um, I'm not going to apologise for coming back to this. I think um, it, it, it it can only be... It's the only issue that we can decently talk about at the moment. Uh, and and I'm, I think that having you on to talk us through the research that you've done for your blog post, the videos that you've done, um, and you know, to see where that discussion leads, I think would be the best possible use of, of, of this podcast at this current time. Yep. So that's why we're doing this. Right. So let's kick off. Um, where should we start? Um, can we talk a little bit about um, what led you then to write this blog post? What kind of a response you've had and um, where, it, where it's taking you? So I see my role somewhat as a Brit living outside of the UK through Brexit and therefore through this general election is essentially trying to break down the complicated goings on in in a sort of digestible manner um mm. very often we can't kind of see the wood for the trees when we're trying to comment on politics but try to say okay let's try and break this down get to the heart of the matter so no sooner had the election been called um, than uh, one of the pro-EU organisations, Best for Britain, brought out their Get Voting Tactical Voting Tool. So it basically said, if you want to vote in any one of Britain's constituencies in order to manage to keep the Tories out, because that's important in order to stop Brexit, this is how in all of these constituencies, based on a statistical model, you should vote. Now, what it did at the beginning, which then in Britain's extremely polarised party political um, uh, situation uh, pushed people the wrong way, is it made a lot of Liberal Democrat recommendations. Even in places where the Liberal Democrats had come in in third place at the general election in 2017, rather than coming in in second, because of course Labour came in in second in most of the constituencies. So that led to, in the early days of the election, this enormous reaction of kind of, what the hell is this? These are people are biased. Um, how is it possible that, that, that you're suggesting that we should vote Liberal Democrat in all of these different places? So I wanted to get my head around this as why these, um, uh, why these suggestions being put forward that way um, and try and get my, my own handle on, 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 um, on how tactical, tactical voting works. Not least because I'm in, a, in an unusual situation as an overseas voter is that I, I can't really go and do a get regular election campaigning and also the seat where I vote as an overseas voter is Bethnal Green and Bow in East London which is a Labour safe seat so I'm not directly impacted by this as an individual voter how I'm going to vote is myself going to be very clear so by the time I started doing my investigation, there were then five tactical voting tools which were available. They are tactical.vote, getvoting, the Best for Britain one, which I've already mentioned, uh, tacticalvote.co.uk, 
Then People's Vote came out with one. And finally, um, Remain United, which is run by the anti-Brexit campaigner Gina Miller. So my effort was then to basically say, okay, let's look at these places where these um, uh, these five different tools, where they agree and actually where they disagree, uh, because where they disagree is, is what, of course, caused all of the controversy. Mm. And so ultimately, my conclusion was actually exactly the opposite conclusion than I'd originally thought I was going to draw, because I was like, ah, hang on a minute, but what are we doing recommending Liberal Democrats here as opposed to Labour? When you start to look at the statistics, actually, at the beginning, in a about two thirds or even three quarters of the cases where there was a difference in tactical voting recommendation between these different five tools, tactical voting wouldn't work anyway. Mm-hmm. It was basically an argument of over who was going to come second behind the Conservatives. Like, mm-hmm. To me, it doesn't really matter if you're a Remain person. Sorry about this. This is the blunt nature of the British election system. If you're in Surrey Heath or, or Arundel and South Downs, the Conservatives are going to get 60 or 70% of the vote anyway. Tactical voting is not going to work. And it's basically a free choice of whether you actually vote Labour or Liberal Democrat in those places. The really important cases, all of the tactical voting tools do agree, because basically the only seats, the 100, 150 seats in the UK that are marginal, the vast, vast majority of them, they are either Tory Labour marginals, that's the biggest number, Tory Lib Dem marginals, and in Scotland, a fair number of Tory SNP marginals. There are very, very few cases where there are three party marginals, where three parties could legitimately win, two of those being pro-Remain parties and one being the pro-Brexit Tories. So ultimately, my conclusion from that research I did and from the blog entry is in the places where tactical voting has to work, i.e. it's really important to keep the Tory out by making sure Labour or the Liberal Democrat wins, in the vast majority of those cases, it's very, very clear from the voting tools what the recommendation is. The problem has often been in the past is people think they're voting tactically, but they don't actually vote tactically in the right way. And that's why it's therefore very important to get this this answer correct. So ultimately, that's the good news. Obviously, it would be better if all of those tools all agreed in all of the cases. But ultimately, and now I have it down in my kind of core list of 128 seats where this stuff matters, there are about 30 of those core seats where there's still a bit of debate. And you might have seen on Twitter, there's been all this, ah, yes, but that's because this tool is biased or that tool's biased by someone else. No, it is not so. It is basically because these different tools simply have different methodologies about tactical voting. You have to basically make a judgment. Is a party that was that came second or was best placed in 2017 likely to repeat that feat? Or because the Liberal Democrats are even now polling at almost twice the rate that they were polling at. They were on about 7% at the last election and they're on about 14% now. Are the Liberal Democrats going to be in a good position to manage to overtake the Labour Party to be the Conservative Party's major rivals in some of those places where it's disputed? And so therefore, do you essentially say, do we go on the basis of the 2017 election or do we go on, for example, how Liberal Democrats have performed in local elections? 
elections, how they performed in European elections, or indeed opinion polling, which may also take account of certain local factors. Is there a particularly compelling candidate, or is the pro-Remain sentiment particularly strong? So that's essentially the, um, the, the, the big question for me is, how many people are going to vote tactically? Because we know in the cases where it matters, we know how to do it by now. And in those cases, so um, I get the sense that um, the organisations that you mentioned who, who've been producing these tactical voting guides, they are very, very much concentrating their fire on uh, a few constituencies, sending in uh, people to knock on doorsteps and hand leaflets out and um, really try to get the message to everybody voting in those few constituencies that yeah. hey, this, this, this really matters here. Yes, as far as possible. The, the the thing is, is these problems with tactical voting are like a microcosm of the problems of the Remain movement, right? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, just as these organisations, like, whether the, the, you may have you've probably debated this round and round about the splits in people's vote and the arguments between people's vote and Remain United and so on. Uh, so this is a kind of a microcosm of this sort of, this sort of a problem. The, the thing is, is that data and how, how those sites make their recommendations is predominantly used by political parties themselves on the doorstep, right? So you've probably faced it, Chris, when someone's come knocked on your door and said and told you, only the Liberal Democrats can win here or only the Labour Party can win here. Um, and they'll basically then, so the voter then says, well, how can you tell me that only the Liberal Democrats can, uh, can win here? And you basically, well, then they will make that argument. Well, yeah, this has been, this has been worked out by one of these, um, uh, these tactical, tactical voting sites that's worked out uh, how the current state of play is in this particular constituency. And that's why I'm either whatever party candidate is, is, is best placed. So what's been happening is a lot of candidates have been taking my videos and my blog post and have been using that for their own campaign purposes. So this is having a sort of multiplier effect, uh, if you like. Um, I've also been trying to act as a kind of like a, an umpire, if you like, mm. in some of the arguments between some of these different sites in terms of their recommendations. Because ultimately, the question for me is a, lo a lot of pro-Remain people basically lent the Labour Party their vote in 2017 in order to manage yeah. to uh, keep Theresa May out. And that sort of good feeling from the Remain side, I don't think that that's quite been replicated at this general election. So even if the Liberal Democrats may be struggling to a certain extent, we do know that particularly in London seats and in towns that are within commuting distance of London, the Liberal Democrat support is holding up more strongly than it seems to be in the rest of the country. And so therefore we're starting to get some sort of pattern, therefore, of how you'd, how you'd vote tactically in, in those cases. Mm. What of course really annoys me is these cases where it's really, really difficult to work out how to recommend how to vote tactically. And then on Twitter in particular, you have this kind of pylon of all of the um, uh, all of the activists of different parties who want to throw any rubbish at you that they can possibly uh, they can possibly throw at you. So uh, the, the the particular low point over the last few days is people have been complaining uh, that I said Middlesbrough incorrectly in my video. And that I said Antoinette Sandbach like a German. Um, and so those were the heavy critiques. Like, come on, folks. Like, I can't be a local in 650 constituencies. Sorry. Um, I'm doing my best here to try to work to basically use the <laughs> available data to make a decent, sensible recommendation. Uh, but the kind of the people in some of these marginal seats like Hitchin and Harpenden or Wimbledon, for example, the fights online are fierce as to basically yeah. who's, who's the best who's the best tactical vote there. Yeah. Yeah, no. 
it's funny that you mentioned this. I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that, but um, I, I remember when I was very young, um, we drove up to visit some friends in Cheshire um, on a family holiday, and we passed Sandbach. It's a, it's a service station, isn't it? No, no, but even though Sand, I don't know. But no, no. Anyway, wait, no, no, but I know you're talking about Antenna. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 anyway. we but we passed the Sandbach yeah. services yeah. on. I guess it was the M6. I, I don't know. I remember my mum looking at that and saying, "Sandbach, what? Why is there a German? Why is there a German? Why is there a Bach here?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fondness for me in German with that, right? Because my my parents live on a road called Redbrook Road, and my German exchange family um, uh, lived on a Schlierbachstraße. So uh, anyway, so Bach is an important word for me in my German learning. Anyway, yeah, let's well, not exactly, talk too long yeah. about Bach and carry on to tactical voting. Yeah. So um, just um, what um, on what you were saying? So I mean, I. I I think a lot of people do find that just just a the concept of tactical voting quite complicated, but also the advice that they're getting very difficult to parse. So, for example, within my family, I've been getting uh, my my extended family, I've been getting requests for advice, like what the hell do we do? Everybody I, I know is very anxious to vote tactically, yeah, but they're not always clear on what to do. So, for example, um, I've had a, uh, I had um, one member of my family come back to me and say. Well, I guess I should just vote the way I voted in 2017, right? I should just vote who, for whoever came second in 2017. I'm saying, no, 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 no. no. Exactly. No. Go and have a look at the websites, and, sort of, and, and, yeah. and what you should not do is just do what do what you did in 2017. Yeah. But, but but do do the research. Yeah. And to which the response was, oh, but but you seriously because Labour came easily second in 2017, and the Lib Dems were miles away. So you're telling me I should vote Lib Dem? I was like, no, no, no. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do what. Why? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do what you did in 2017. It just means that you need to do your due diligence. You need to check. Yeah. Just assume that you should do it. Yeah. Most times, you will do what you did in 2017. Yeah. In almost, in the vast majority of the constituencies, um, it's going to be fairly clear cut who you should exactly. vote for. But exactly, as you said, exactly. in some, and and maybe we should give um, listeners some guidance as to how to find out whether they're voting in one of those constituencies. Right. So the so let's go through the steps then right so the i'm not affiliated to any of these tactical voting tools but there is one which has a great comparison tool that is tactical adopt vote so my suggestion and they keep the data up to date from across all of the five sites so go to tactical dot vote slash compare and put in your constituency name in that table. And it's got five columns in the table, and it basically says how all of the different tactical voting tools from a keep Boris Johnson out and pro-Remain perspective, you should then vote. Okay? Mm. And so if you go to that um, uh, to that site, and it tells you at the, at the time of the recording of this podcast that there are 567 of the 635 seats that they've um, uh, analysed, because there are also some in Northern Ireland they've not analysed, um, that there is agreement between the different voting tools. So if you get all of those uh, options lined up in that comparison voting tool, or indeed sometimes you might get a few seats uh, um, of them greyed out where there's no recommendation, that means you are in a... It's very clear how to vote tactically. Just trust that table and go and do it, right? 
So, in, <coughs> at the time of the recording, to re- repeat, in 567 of the of the UK's constituencies, you can very safely go and vote tactically based on the information at that website, tactical.vote slash compare. Okay? So, that's the clearest. So, to your family or to any other listeners, the first starting point is, do all of the sites agree? And in the vast majority of cases, they will agree. Right? So, that's all nice and good. Bear in mind that sometimes even if they agree, of course, it might not be actually a place where the result is in any doubt. But nevertheless, if you want to be absolutely certain in those cases, in those 567, you know exactly how to do it. Okay? So, the next case then is what to do if those uh, tactical voting sites disagree and how do you work out which way uh, you could cast your tactical vote. Now, you first of all need to then look at the result of the of the general election in 2017 in that constituency and compare that to who is running now in 2019. Now, for every single constituency, the precise result of 2017 and all of the candidates running in 2019 is on Wikipedia, English version, or is available from the website Democracy Club. So essentially, look at what's going on in your... In, in a, so basically, if the tactical voting sites disagree, look at the details on your constituency. The first thing to check is, is there something unusual happening in the party the parties that are running? So take, for example... The what would normally be the very safe Labour seat in Nottinghamshire, Ashfield. That has a local group called the Ashfield Independents that are running, and those Ashfield Independents have actually got a pretty good chance of managing to win that seat. Now, Jason Zadrozny, their candidate, is actually a hardline, you're a sceptic. So therefore, if you're a Remainer, your best bet is to vote Labour. If, however, you are in East Devon, where there is an independent running called Claire Wright, she's super pro-EU. And so in that case, you've got to manage to check, right? So essentially, is there something untoward with the party political um, uh, of who's running? So those you need to pay special attention to, but there aren't so many of those. There's perhaps a dozen constituencies like that uh, in in the country. And then you come to the ones which are the most complicated. They are three-way marginal seats. Normally, with the Conservatives in first place, i.e. they won the seat, Labour in second, and the Liberal Democrats in third. There are almost no seats which are very close three-way marginals, where it's the other way round, where you have Tory, Lib Dem, Labour. It's mostly Tory, Labour, Lib Dem. All right, so that's the most common group. In those, so these are places like, and this is not a complete list, but they are places like Cities of London and Westminster, Wimbledon, Watford, Hitchin and Harpenden, uh, Wantage, Chelmsford, right? So, i.e., in central London or in commuter distance from London, and then there are a number of seats in uh, Devon and Cornwall, so places like Torridge and West Devon or Newton Abbott. These are places where the Labour Party did well in 2017, but in elections prior to 2017, the Liberal Democrats traditionally did well. So ultimately, you've therefore got to make a judgment 
as to whether which parties are actually really working this area to try to manage to win it. I.e., are there going to be enough ex-Tories that will switch to the Liberal Democrats or not? And so that's the, the complicated matter in, in, in those cases. Now, my view largely is in particularly strong Remain areas. So places like Wimbledon or c- cities of London and Westminster, Richmond Park, Chelsea and Fulham, places like this, or even some of the outer commu- um, commuting uh, places like Esher and Walton or Wokingham. These are places where there are going to be enough pro-Remain Tories who are likely to switch their affiliation to the Liberal Democrats. So in those places, probably the Liberal Democrats are a better bet. In some of those marginal constituencies which are further away from London and the South East and may not be so pro-Remain, places like Truro and Falmouth, for example, um, or Altrincham and Sale, um, those are places where probably Labour is a, is a, is a better bet. If you want, for any of the, the people listening to this podcast, if you want dedicated advice, please just email me or tweet to me the name of the constituency and I'll give you a quick summary of what's going on there and how the current lay of the land looks. Just bear in mind that simply we are lacking data in some places. For places like York Outer, or indeed the the weirdest of all is Watford. Watford, for example, is basically, 2017 was a Conservative Labour marginal, but the Liberal Democrats control local council and have the directly elected mayor. Now, how do you know on the basis of that who is going to win at a general election? Right? As anyone who's not living in Watford, it's very, very difficult to manage to work that out. So basically, you unfortunately, there are just some cases at the margin where it's very, very hard to work those, uh, work those things out. One thing it's also worth saying is I am aware that much tactical voting advice also founders on people disliking the Labour Party and having problems with either Corbyn or anti-Semitism in the Labour Party or indeed some individual candidates. So, for example, I think that Labour is the best bet in Don Valley where Caroline Flint is the Labour Member of Parliament. Now, she is pro-Brexit, but better having Caroline Flint one more non-Tory who will deny Boris Johnson a majority than having one pro-Brexit person who will give Boris Johnson one more seat for a majority for the Conservatives. So those are the situations. It's a tough one. one. But bear in mind, if you're in Don Valley or or you're in um, Blackley and and Broughton where it's Graham Stringer or you're in Luton South um, uh, and it's uh, Kelvin Hopkins' daughter, I can't remember her first name, I think Rachel Hopkins um, is running... I think in those places you have to hold your nose and vote Labour still, although yeah. it's ultimately, of course, an individual person's um, ethical choice. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I personally don't have to face such an ethical quandary. But such is the nature of First Past the Post. There is just simply no way of avoiding these kinds of difficult choices. Hmm. I've been um, busy chuckling to myself in the background because we've been talking about Watford and of course Watford is the constituency where this family member is that I advise to... <laughs> 
Ah. And now I'm thinking, oh shit, maybe I gave her the wrong advice. Um, no, but it, it's, it's really, really difficult to know. Now, the, dip, the problem is, is like, what, what, what data have we got? We've got 2017 election, 2015 election, local elections, European Parliament elections. In some constituencies, we have a constituency poll. So that's why, for example, ultimately, the recommendation, for example, Finchley and Golders Green is clearly Liberal Democrat because we have the evidence from the constituency poll. Now, the difficulty then, of course, is all the different political parties are getting an idea of how it's going on the ground, but anyone trying to advise on tactical voting isn't privy to that information, i.e. we don't know how good that, that those canvassing returns are from those different political parties. Uh, and so therefore, any data I can lay my hands on, I'll happily use. But the difficulty is, is mostly all I've got from most of those constituencies essentially is, is anecdote. And, 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 it's, and that's not adequate in order to manage to make decent, uh, decent advice. Mm. I mean, it's this is all just evidence that the British electoral system is irretrievably broken. I mean, I, yes. I feel very, I feel very um, honestly, I feel very down about it. I it I, because I don't see the path to it being repaired. I it it, it it's it's a bizarre situation where you have an electoral system that. Um, eternally replicates itself and, and the yep. only way of solving uh, this, this serious malfunction is for the existing system to vote itself out of existence. And, right, and, and, and the two main political parties don't want to change it. No. And, and if you just look at the ferocity of Liberal Democrat attacks on the Labour Party and vice versa, yeah. and then you're getting other people going just like, come on, just calm down, like... And why didn't you strike a deal? Because, like, in London, for example, right, or, 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 or and, and, and um, uh, not so far outside of the, of the M25, there was such a brilliant potential for deals, right? There were two, when there are two high-profile Tories where the Labour Party is in second place. That's um, Chingford and Woodford Green, which is where it's Ian Duncan Smith is, is with Labour snapping at his heels, and Uxbridge, where Boris Johnson is. And then you've got Wokingham, where it's John Redwood, and Isher and Walton, where it's um, uh, Dominic Raab, where the Liberal Democrats are in second spot. Like, why did the Liberal Democrats not stand the, down their candidates in, in, um, in Uxbridge and Chingford and Woodford Green, and Labour stand down their candidates in, in Isher and Walton and, and, and Wokingham? Now, to party political people, that's just an anathema to them. They will refuse to do that. Whereas there are thousands of people going online just like, come on, parties, like, why can't you get your act together to... Uh, to basically make sure that that Remain can prevail here, or, or in a, in a seat like Chelsea and Fulham in London, where the Conservatives are now are odds on to win because you're going to get like you're going to get Greg Hands, a pro Brexit Tory in a very solidly Remain constituency. He'll get forty, and Labour and the Liberal Democrats both get twenty five. Now, if they put, put help pull that vote together, then you could have defeated Greg Hands, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's horrid. Right, it's, it's very depressing. But let's look at the more positive things, right? If you look at some of the really marginal seats, so seats, for example, like um, Newcastle under Lyme, right? So this, the total number of votes in 2017 in Newcastle under Lyme was Labour 21,124 and Conservatives 21,094, right? There were 30 votes in it, 
right? Mm. And the Liberal Democrats won 1,624. Now, in that seat, your tactical voting recommendation is crystal clear. If you're a Remainer, you've got to back the Labour Party candidate. Simple. Done. Right? Now, you've got to hold your nose and do it, but how to do it in a seat like that is absolutely, totally clear. Mm. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. No, I mean, let's let's go back and talk a little bit about the uh, failure of um, the Lib Dems and Labour to um, come up with some kind of workable arrangement for some of these seats, um, which will certainly cost the um, Remainers uh, some seats in Parliament. I mean, it's, yeah. I think that's inevitable. Um, obviously, um, Joe Swinson's strategy is to steal Tory votes. She she sees that as being the area where she can make gains. She 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 does not see much potential for winning over Labour voters, whereas she does see potential for winning over Tory voters. And that seems to me to be sensible. That, that yeah. makes sense. Um she has identified Corbyn as being the biggest um turn off to Tory voters who might be thinking about defecting to anybody because they don't want to let Jeremy Corbyn in. Therefore, she has pursued a, a strategy of being extremely um, confrontationally critical of, of, of Corbyn and of Labour. Now, whether that works or not, we'll have to see. It certainly sticks in the core of people like you and me who are more, yeah. who, who like a more um, continental way of doing politics and are yeah. thinking ahead, thinking, well, you know, if, if we do get the hung parliament that we want, these, these people are going to have to work together. Yeah. It's very frustrating, but here's the thing. I'm yet again another little family anecdote. Um, a family member of mine, very politically active, has stood for Parliament. is a has been a Tory for many many years. Has defected to the Lib Dems and is campaigning for the Lib Dems in his local constituency. I had a conversation with him the other day. Family member. Um, now, in, in our family, it doesn't get much more remain than our family for all sorts of reasons. As you, know, I mean, we've got a Eurocrat, we've got um, uh, EU citizen living in the UK. We've got all sorts of reasons to be very, very pro EU. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he. We were having this conversation, and he said, um, "I think that Corbyn would be even worse for the UK than Brexit." <laughs> Yeah, but now I'm I, not going to really, debate that. I really, I really, I've heard that quite often. And I, I really don't exactly. Buy, my, I really I'm not going to debate it. No, of course not. I mean, I, I, I don't even want to address that argument. I yeah. take it as as read that you and I and most listeners to this podcast will not even for one second entertain such a ridiculous notion. But it really bothers me that somebody as well informed as 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 as, as this person said that. But, I, the, it, but it really took me aback to hear. But that. the thing is, is that what you've now. It, if Corbyn could completely get his way within the Labour Party, maybe that might be true. The thing is, is he Even can't. It wouldn't be true. Even no, if it wouldn't, he'd still only be for five years. He's still, I mean, come on. Yeah, but it, wait, wait, right. <laughs> but but if, if you were of a right-wing persuasion and you took at Corbyn's statements at face value... Maybe. But the thing is, is for me, is that Corbyn is going to be immensely constrained by his own party. Because yes. the vast, vast majority of his members of parliament are not as far left as he is. Right? And there, is, there are excellent, top-quality backbenchers in the Labour Party who are thoughtful and decent and responsible people. 
What the real scandal is for me in the Conservative Party is the extent to which people who did at least have a decent mind have essentially sacrificed any ability to think on the kind of altar of supporting Boris Johnson. And so therefore, if Johnson gets a majority, that's genuinely dangerous because they'll go like sheep off behind him now, mm-hmm. at least until the Brexit deal is over the line. The idea that somehow, this idea that, 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 that Corbyn with free reign, well, Corbyn is not going to get free reign because Corbyn is not going to get a majority because Corbyn's only going to be able to actually possibly govern in a, with a minority government or in some kind of a coalition. And so this this kind of bogeyman Corbyn, I, 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 I don't get me wrong, I dislike the guy that the anti-Semitism scandal is really awful and he needs to be removed as Labour Party um, uh, um, head of the party. But still, it's less bad for the UK exactly, than it would exactly. be with Johnson. This is the point. You don't have to be uh, a closet supporter of Jeremy Corbyn or a particular fan of Jeremy Corbyn to see very plainly that it's still, if the choice is Jeremy Corbyn or um, um, in any in any sense, even if even a Jeremy Corbyn majority, which let's, isn't going to happen, but even a Jeremy Corbyn majority, in comparison to a Boris Johnson majority, how can anybody with half a brain even hesitate for a second over that? And I'm, now I'm being very tendentious and offending all sorts of people. But come on, come on! But the, the thing is that I, I can't see that either, but I can kind of see how people would take a different view. Because the... If you're fed this, he's left, takes the country back to the 70s, all of these kind of the, these points of view. Which is Tory party policy. Which right? is Tory party policy. But, but if that's fed to you ad infinitum, uh, online, through the way and means that the messages are given also by Conservative Party uh, politicians... Um, the thing is, is one thing that, that Jeremy Corbyn is not very good at, in my view, is lying. Right, he's actually too <laughs> stubborn for that, and so the, but the thing and 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 we know very well that, that that Boris Johnson is an enormous liar. But nevertheless, therefore, it, it's kind of this sort of old crank versus a sort of funny jovial lying one, and it's it's a very very weird election campaign in 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 that respect. But the essential point, as I see it, is this: is it ha- you have to towards Liberal Democrats, SNP supporters, dampen that down. A minority government of the Labour Party would not be a strong government, and that would be a good thing. What you would basically have is a minority government or some kind of coalition that would take Britain until the summer or, or early autumn of 2020, so as a Brexit referendum could uh, could take place. You've got to basically stomach Boris, uh, sorry, that stomach Jeremy Corbyn that long and not longer than that. Hmm. Exactly. But then um, the question that I'm asking myself and a lot of people are asking themselves is um, a hung parliament is, is not, you know, this, we, we shouldn't concede defeat just yet. It's, it's, it's absolutely within reach. It could happen. Yeah, yeah, but it's if, absolutely. If it absolutely. No, when it, <laughs> but if it happens. The positive thing, right, look at it this way, right? The, um, uh, there have been some, the Independent had a story um, uh, this morning about increasing percentages of the population that say that, 
they're going to be willing to vote tactically. <clears throat> there is a narrowing of the opinion polls. And if you the, the question which is asked, is this election the most or is it very important to you? The, the numbers of people in the country that say, yes, it is very important is higher than it's been, I think, since 1997 or even 1992. Uh, you've got record uh, electoral registration during the final week while electoral registration was still possible. So a, a hung parliament here is still very much within reach, particularly if enough people vote tactically. Mm. But yeah, so where I was going with this is um, if we do get that hung parliament, which pray God we do, if we get that hung parliament, how, how do we see the various parties that are in, standing in opposition to, the, to, to Boris Johnson and the Tory party in parliament? How do we see them working together after this horrible? I mean, we, we, there was there was that small glimmer of hope, wasn't there, before the election, where you saw um, Swinson and Corbyn working together uh, yeah. with, with with the other smaller smaller parties, uh, and and the SNP, which which is not a smaller party. If Steve were here, he would be um, <laughs> kicking kicking me for that. But um, we saw them working together after this election. Do you, it, do you think everybody will say, "Well, you know, that was just election. That was just um, that was just the way politics works." Now we'll just get on and do the job. But I, mean, I don't think it'll be done like that. There'll be a lot of kind of tantrums and screaming yeah. um, about it, and you'll have a load of commentators going, "Ah, this is going to be crashing the stock market and so on." Yeah. I think there are basically two possible ways forward. One would be a minority Labour administration backed by the SNP and by the Liberal Democrats. Um, on the issues that matter in that regard, i.e., mm. Brexit-related issues, to manage to get the the law on the statute book to to hold a to hold a second referendum, uh, I think they they'd agree on on, on those points, um, or potentially a Labour plus SNP coalition, because there um, the Scottish National Party are canny enough to realise that actually that they would that would give them an increased uh, leverage potentially mm. also to hold a, a second referendum in, in in Scotland as well. So ultimately, those are the two, as I see it, the two most likely options. I can't see the Liberal Democrats joining a coalition with Labour, and I, mm. I definitely can't see them all this room. Oh yes, but all, I'll do what they did in 2010, which is predominantly put around by Labour Party people. The Liberal Democrat oh, members no, no. would have to approve a coalition, no. and look at what happened to the Liberal Democrats the last time oh, they tried no that. Chance, there's no that's, chance that's, that's, that's going to happen. That's, so that's that one, that's how that's out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. So ultimately, those those are, I think, the most um, the most likely uh, the most likely scenarios. So I think it would be pretty bumpy, pretty rocky. Such a government may not last much longer than than the day of holding such a referendum. Um, but um, yeah, it, it wouldn't be particularly nice um, or particularly easy. But it would still be better than a Boris Johnson government. Mm-hmm. No, it would it would certainly be um, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> It would be. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm scared to be honest with you. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do next next week. Um, I, I suspect I'll, I will end up staying up and watching it as as I as, as I usually do. But I'm, I'll be watching it from behind the sofa. I think. The will will have a good idea already when the polls close with the exit mm. poll. Um, mm. Let's see. I, I'm. I'm. I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about the situation now than was the case a week ago. I'm not yet optimistic, yeah. but I'm a little bit more positive. Yeah. And your grounds for that? Uh, electoral registration, these high percentages of people saying that they're willing to vote tactically, the polls are narrowing just a little bit, 
Um, Liberal Democrat vote in some areas seems, or potential seems to be holding up in those areas where they'd have to beat mm. Tories. Um, I think that these sort of this remain side coordination, even if the parties can't do it, well, the voters are not actually stupid, and they're perhaps doing it to a greater extent than than the parties would want it to happen. Mm. So I'm. Um, uh, those are there, there's a little few grains of optimism in there somewhere. Mm. Well, let's, let's take take whatever we can get. Direction of travel um, at this point mm, is it's in the right direction, but whether it's sufficiently um, fast or, or whether there's enough momentum there, is, is, that's what it, that's where I have my doubts. We'll yeah. see, we'll see, we'll but see. but but my, but the the Labour has run a, an orderly election campaign. Um, it's done the main things right. The Conservatives have looked e- evasive and empty. They, particularly Johnson and Patel, kind of were wrong-footed in their response to the the London Bridge uh, attack. Um, and I, I think that some of those things have. This this idea that somehow Boris Johnson is a sort of an asset that he can kind of reach voters that Conservatives otherwise can't reach, I don't think that really holds to the same extent mm. anymore. There was a very no, interesting thing that was t- today a story in the Evening Standard that, for example, Boris Johnson doesn't appear on any Conservative online ads in London, whereas mm. he does in the rest of the country. Because I assume, therefore, they've worked out the data that actually putting Boris Johnson on your ads in London is actually not of a benefit to the party, no, which, he's, is, he's which as an ex-mayor of London, is quite an interesting thing, right? It's extraordinary, isn't it? But, I mean, he's clearly a liability, and, that, and that's presumably why he's not going... why he's not giving interviews, and he's right. generally trying to be kept as far away from everybody as possible. Yeah. Um, and they've clearly taken the decision that that's going to do them less harm in the, in, in the next two weeks than actually putting him out there would do. Correct, so correct, kind of correct. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, where should we go next? Um, is there anything else we need to talk about on the issue of tactical voting? All I would say, just to kind of round the bit off with tactical voting, is trust those tactical voting tools if you want individual advice about a constituency feel free to contact me um and if you can okay bear in mind if you've got a postal vote get get it sent off already otherwise make up your mind at the very last minute i.e based on the data right at the moment before you have to cast that ballot i.e don't actually make your up your mind or make a decision before you strictly have mm. to um and talk to family and friends get out of the digital online bubble and go and speak to different people i've been was explaining to my aunt uh, yesterday for example how, how this would work so yeah. um have those conversations with friends and family and as far as you can um to try to explain to them uh, the, the lay of the land those are the Absolutely. main things but bear in mind this is a horrible election system and this is just trying to make it a little bit well taking the, the nasty edges off it let's put it that way well this is this is firefighting this is this is this is we're trying to put out a fire here we're you know we're, we're we're a long way from rebuilding the house and it may be that that's not something that we can do very easily but we can at least try and put this fire out yep correct mm. um how do people get in touch with you john so you can contact me via my website, johnworth.eu, that's John without H, so J-O-N-W-O-R-T-H dot E-U, or I'm on Twitter, I'm at johnworth, so J-O-N-W-O-R-T-H, those are the best ways, so there's a contact form on the website, it's probably the easiest. So 
Um, one of the things that's one of the things that has been annoying me during this one of the one of the few just one, one of the thing. only few things that have been annoying me during <laughs> yeah. this general election campaign uh, has been um, there has been uh, you know it's been pitched as the um, Brexit election, but obviously the problem with general elections or the thing about general elections is that they um, are not single issue and that they tend to go in all sorts of directions. And one thing that has um, been uh, a, a key battleground has been the NHS. Yeah. But I tell you what annoys me about this. It's not that the NHS is a battleground, because it should be. It's very important. But what annoys me is the way in which um, the arguments that I see being waged on Twitter and in um, in the media um, presented as a kind of binary issue. Either we keep our NHS as it is, um, or we end up with some kind of US-style healthcare system. Um, and, of course, it is not a binary issue. There are all sorts of models out there, much closer to hand, which show that um, there are other ways of doing these things. The more European ways of doing these things, and we are a European country. It's not just the NHS, it's all sorts of things. And we were already talking about that. We were talking about it in terms of general political discourse and so on. But the NHS is just one, and it's... Um, it, 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 it's on my mind. I, I put a tweet, tw- Twitter thread on um, about it this evening. I wrote a Twitter thread about it this evening. It's on my mind because this morning um, I um, went from Brussels over to um, Nordrhein-Westfalen in Germany where my mum is um, just recovering from an operation. She had an operation um, in Germany uh, because she is registered with um, a German Krankenkasse, um, state health insurance um, body. So it's not NHS health tourism. She's not she's not in Germany, but being paid for by the NHS. Um, she's in Germany because the NHS treatment that she received, it's a replacement, hip replacement, if you see what I mean, is because that mm. it was botched in the UK and she wasn't getting the treatment that she needed. And she got it done in Germany um, very quickly, very professionally, and she's now in what they call a reha clinic, a rehabilitation clinic, which is... <laughs> amazing <laughs> the service that she's getting the treatment that she's getting and it's all covered by her state health insurance because of the national insurance contributions that she made as a 20 year old you know mm. in, while she was still in germany give her you know a three-week rehabilitation course in this wonderful facility full of all sorts of it so the the analogy i gave was it's a bit like a cruise ship except in a cruise ship you you know you look out the window you just see the sea whereas she gets to see you know trees and running water and all. <laughs> like what why why would anybody pay good money to go on a cruise when you could just break your leg and get it all for free in a German reha clinic? Um, but but the thing is the thing with this is that the the this this ties into this this issue of British politics which is that. It's either a kind of an experience of the US or an experience in the UK, which are the Mm. issues which kind of dominate. Lots of Labour politicians have been to the United States and and seen and learned campaigning from the Democrats and so on. And then there's this issue also with Johnson and and Trump and the NHS. When you've... Now, don't get me wrong, there are difficulties with the German healthcare system. Of course, uh, and, and, yes. And, and, and particularly in Berlin, for example, where there's basically a shortage of workers of all sorts, um, there, are, there are considerable 
difficulties and, and, and waiting times. But both the German and the French healthcare systems, in my experience, and also having helped a, a friend through a cancer treatment uh, through the Belgian system, those systems are actually, it's, it boils down to a question of money in many yes, cases, exactly. not necessarily a question of exactly how you organise your, your healthcare service. Because ultimately, how much the British National Healthcare and the NHS, in my experience, is very good at, or obviously not in your mother's case, but in, in, in most cases, is very good at fixing you if something is broken. But it is not good for that longer term promotion of your health in comparison mm. to the situation in either Germany or France. Um, or Belgium. Yeah. yeah and, and so therefore, the, I, I find that that's, the, the debate gets very, ah, is it going to be privatised or not? Or how much, mm. how much money should be given to it or not? Whereas actually, what you could get for that money is, is, is heavily fought over. There's also this big argument also always in the UK that everyone wants a local hospital, which I also emotionally understand. But I'm not necessarily always convinced that that's necessarily the most rational way of actually delivering that healthcare. And so therefore health policy in comparison right, becomes a political football in yeah. the UK in a way that it's not to the same extent. Now, it's debated in Germany, but if you had a tele the televised debate um, before the last German national election between Merkel and Scholz, health care was barely even mentioned as a topic in, in the, the, um, uh, the, the German election campaign. Now, some of that's in part due to it was German federalism, another part of it is due to the, the nature of the way that health care is financed in Germany. But Britain seems to talk about healthcare all the time, but not really be really that forthcoming or, 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 or interesting in terms of the way that it wants to actually solve the problems of its healthcare system. So, um, so I agree. We're talking about it. It needs it needs looking at. Um, but but I find that um, I find that debate um, uh, rather frustrating. I, I must say, it's, I, it's as if it's as if this election. I find the election generally, aside from the Brexit things, very hard to grasp. It's as if the whole election is about who's going to win rather than why it is they will win or what they're proposing to do if they do win. And, like, what really of an economic policy are we actually really going to get? Because the difficulty is, is the Conservatives can promise the world, but if they go through with Brexit, they take an economic hit. The Labour Party can promise the world because, well, if the Tories are promising the world, then the Labour Party can promise the world. The Liberal Democrats are not going to make the government, so they can try to be pragmatic, but no one really believes that they're actually going to implement what they say. And so therefore we have this situation where I find it very, very hard to, with any degree of predictability, be able to actually say, if these people win, what are they actually going to do in any of the others other than Brexit? Um, because because you can't separate all those other policy areas from the Brexit question. Well, this is this is this is where I was going with this because um, I, I, I'm not a, a, an expert on health policy, and the point I was trying to, to make is, is a more general one. There, there, what's happened in the last couple of elections is that we seem to have crossed a certain threshold, which is that you know there was at least in the past there was always the pretense that we were talking about policies. We would have you know manifestos would be produced and they would be debated and they would, but you know. You get the sense that 
after the last couple of elections, where, for example, um, in, in, in 2015 and again in 2017, well, in 2015, where the election manifesto was so quickly d- discarded and, 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 and uh, ignored by, by, by the Tories. And then in 2017, where that, that parliament, that government essentially did nothing except try to get Brexit through, therefore nothing. Uh, to the point now where you've got um, the Tory parties, the Tory party has, it's obviously, if it, I reckon there must have been a, a strategy meeting before the election was called where they probably sat there and thought very long and hard about whether they could get away with not even producing a manifesto. Yeah. Clearly they left it until the very last minute and made yeah, yeah. it as anodyne as absolutely possible. And I get the sense that actually they probably could have got away with not even doing it. Yeah. You know, what would happen? Because most, you know, and, and, and the, that is an illustration of the fundamental broken nature of UK politics because it's it's all down to our first-past-the-post system and the fact that you've got these behemoths of political parties that um, are that have this sort of sense of entitlement and the reason they have that sense of entitlement is because they they deserve it because they know that they're going to get X number of seats anyway. Yeah. Um, or, or, t- or take the Labour Party's position. The Labour Party conference passed a motion saying... We're in favour of freedom of movement, right. even in the case of, of, of Brexit happening. And then the Labour Party then deciding in its manifesto decides, well, we're just going to water that down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wouldn't but it you'd be have wonderful? mutiny on your hands in a German political well, party exactly. if you tried Wouldn't to do that. Wouldn't it be that? wonderful to be, in, to be in a system where, you know, you, you, you vote for a party on the basis of policies that it's putting forward. And then your vote will be reflected in a proportional way in the resulting parliament. With the expectation that if you, if enough people agree with you, your part, your, the policies that you voted for are going to be implemented, either because the party that you voted for is a junior member of a coalition and has managed to get it into the coalition agreement, or because it's the largest party. Either way, yeah. you know, in in your lifetime as a political um, politically uh, literate um, adult and voting adult, you know, you have every expectation of being able to see some of the things that you vote for. On the statute book, whereas in right. the UK, in the vast majority of constituencies, um, even even in those constituencies where you're voting for the party that um, wins, generally, because that vote is taken for granted, or because your vote simply doesn't count at all in the big picture, chances are none th- nothing that you vote for is ever going to see the light of day. Well, it's also <laughs> that, that leads to, if we lead that back in kind of to the system with regard to, to Brexit, and also how then a referendum is so destabilising in that, in that British system. Um, mm. My parents live in Newport in South Wales that voted, I think, 62%, so 62-63% for Brexit. Um, so 130,000 population city was the, was the port through which most of the, the coal from, um, from the mines in South Wales was exported. There's not so much being exported out of there anymore because the... the uh, the, the mines have closed. The steelworks where my grandfather worked um, has also meanwhile closed. But the thing is, is everyday politics in a town like that is, is if not really dead, then at least dying. Because the Labour Party has not really traditionally had to work there because it knows it's going to win. The Conservatives don't work because they don't really... They know they're not going to win. The Liberal Democrats don't really work because the Liberal Democrats have never been strong in kind of workers' towns or even in Wales in general. And no one speaks Welsh there, which means Plaid Cymru doesn't really even do much. And so you have a situation where 
you have a population and a town that feels genuinely, with, with some justification, annoyed by its situation, but not having the control or the power or the ability or the political connection to really do something about it. And the British election system essentially means that like two thirds to three quarters of the country ends up feeling politically yeah. like that. Yeah. Right? That why should the Conservatives do decent policy for Newport? Because it doesn't really matter. The, mm. the, the future of the Conservative Party is not going to change based on what's going to happen in Newport. Exactly. Or just the exactly. future of the Labour Party is not going to change what's going to, what's going to happen in um, uh, Chelsea and Fulham. And so... The, and There's no incentive what, for the parties to speak to the to voters in those. Right, in those and then that also then means that when you have a referendum where every vote then does count, you've yeah. still not got any way to really go and talk to people, and so then you've got to filter the whole lot through the media, and we, ha- we yeah. haven't got time to discuss that. But so the the very way that that policy and politics is made for people in the UK is with my kind of German politics hat on, is itself just deficient, right? That Absolutely. You, yeah. you can afford to forget either by neglect or even explicitly large parts of the country because your own political future as a party doesn't depend on yeah. that. Well, there are, there are a number of obvious ways in which this could be addressed actually quite easily, um, in, in technical terms, if not in political terms, uh, and one of them, of course, we've already discussed, which is changing the, the the voting system so that everybody's vote actually counts. But another one is a, is is a, a, a favourite issue of ours, John, uh, of, of mutual interest to both of us, um, which is of course federalism yep. and, and and introducing a more federal uh, system of government into the United Kingdom. Or you know, firstly, it's a no-brainer. It yep. really ought to have been done a long, long time ago. Yeah, it would be. Pure win on, on in every in every sense, except perhaps for uh, the exceptionist clique in Westminster. Yeah, and and it would precisely address many of these issues. It, right. it, it would it would well. I mean, I, we don't need to do a manifesto for federalism. We don't have the time for it right now. But yeah. um, it's something that perhaps we 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 did cover the issue of federalism in a very early podcast. Uh, it might be something that it'd be interesting for you yeah. and I to come back to it another time, actually. But, it, but, but it's, um, it's very, very important that political and financial control rests as close to the citizens as possible. Yes, exactly. And the UK, which is so bemoaning of any power in the European Union, actually doesn't do a good job of decentralising a power within its own state. No, it's an entirely um, hypocritical uh, position taken yeah. by the Westminster government, which, but, but it's down to its exceptionalism. On the right. one hand, it it... it, it, it talks about taking back control from brussels but on the other hand it simply won't countenance seriously seriously devolving powers or controls to it to the regions of the united kingdom or even the nations of the united kingdom yeah and it's it's something that um for some again for some inexplicable reason seems simply not to penetrate the 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 general public perception and this is this is where i kind of want to close really is um pulling all these threads together um you know Joining the European Union, joining the common market, as it was back at the time, was supposed to be about exposing the UK to other ways of doing things, and and you know in the in the in the, in the traditional EU way of um, 
of, of, of exercising normative power of yeah. um, setting an example of 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 bring of of, of if you like assimilating uh, countries um, so that they become more like the EU um, uh, in in the best possible way, not in a negative way. Seeing how things can be done better, reforming and moving into uh, moving in that direction. That was supposed to happen with the UK. And here we are, in, it's about to be 2020, after 40 plus years of EU membership, it didn't work with the UK. On the contrary, now we're pulling, up, pulling away. We're, we're, we're going to shut down those avenues, uh, of, 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 those, those ways of seeing how things can be done differently. Yeah, but the thing uh, how, is, how, how did we fail? We, I, don't, I don't know whether we... At all those levels, we it did fail, right? Um, I was at a I was at a conference about innovation in politics in 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 Berlin today, and there was an enormous number of British speakers at this event, but none mm. of them working in Britain. Right? <laughs> we just exported. Them. We just exported them, right? This is brilliant guy in charge of Ireland's national library strategy. He's a British librarian, right? Um, the or, or if you look at how British universities have adapted to you or had adapted to European networks of research, right? Britain did well at that. British finance in, financial industries, which profited from the single market in in, in financial industries. It's just this political level which is decoupled from that reality. Or another way, right? I, I'm an ex-civil servant, so I was on the same side as you, Chris, but I'm, I'm, I've, I've jumped out. If I look at the view or the, at the policymaking level, how relatively well integrated the UK was at least up until 2010, then it started getting a bit sour. It's at the political level where it's the worst, right? And that poisons everything. Now, that's what started to get me very nervous in the 2010 to 2015 uh, period that led up then to the referendum, mm. was when you had politicians instructing civil servants to go to negotiate to Brussels in Brussels and to deliberately lose. Mm. That's, when, that's when it started... Already, this kind of faithful co- cooperation that you would have hoped, um, hoped for, started t- to wither away, yeah. and I see this as predominantly a political and party political problem. Because looking again at the German comparison, someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg is not a respectable politician in Germany. He would be in the alternative for Deutschland. He mm. would not be in the CDU. No. Yeah? So what you've got is that nastiness, that narrowness, that inward-lookingness, the authoritarian nature, that kind of angsty politics which has come to the fore in many European countries, but at least been channeled in party politics of um, Front National or the FPO in Austria or the Dansk Volkpartie. You've got all of those tendencies which have all been channeled in within the Conservative Party yeah, yeah. and through the referendum in the UK. And so... And then bear in mind that there are other countries that have also got their kind of colonial delusions, um, France, for example. So, but if nevertheless find a way and means of kind of lining those delusions up with still being in the European Union. So I, I don't, I don't see this as a sort of deficient Europeanization necessarily. I see this as 
systemic dysfunction of the British party yeah. political system. Yeah. No, I, I, I th- you, that's that's right. That's correct. That's what we've been talking about. Is that is is, is the, what what we're what we're seeing now are the um, results of long-standing, long-term, slow-moving structural failure. Yeah, uh, and, and 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 ironically, many of the things that we used to slap ourselves in the back for um, and see as great. Uh, strengths have indeed turned out to be uh, weaknesses i mean i'm thinking for example of the fact that we have this uh political system where two parties essentially um vie between themselves for for for, for leadership and they are both hugely broad churches and that was seen as a good thing that way we don't have extremists because we have them inside this broad church well that's great until the broad church is then taken over by one of the fringes and, and the current awful dystopia we've taken over by both you know both parties have been taken over by their extreme fringes yeah uh, and leaving the center with nowhere to go and it's very frustrating but also with respect to things for example like um unwritten constitutions or working on the basis of consensus and consent and so on and all these things where where we think well we don't need all those things like a basic law because you know we're, we're british and we do these things yeah so, or, or yeah. again why why britain can't get to grips with russian influence in the elect in the uh, referendum campaign it doesn't mm. it doesn't correspond with the Brit- british people's view of themselves as essentially being an honest uncorruptible people right mm. it, it doesn't it's not part of the self-image Right, like mm. election corruption, that's for other people. That's not for the British. Mm. Um, and and um, and when you have, and you've got this, and I have this to a certain extent. When you've you look back at the UK in this in this situation, and and it's and it's just with an immense sadness um, that that's the kind of predominant sentiment that I would I would I would express it as um, that. There are other ways to do this, right? You can do this better, and many other European countries have found ways and means of doing it better. So, so put aside the kind of post-colonial hangover and start to work out how to do that. Now, of course, in the UK, there are really good examples. There's what they've done in Froome. There's what's going on in Preston. The Welsh Assembly is starting to gain its, its footing. I was looking the other day at, at the Scottish National Party of how they came in many constituencies from fourth to first between 2010 and 2015. Right. London hasn't understood what happened there, right? Mm. And the quality of the politicians that the SNP has, like they're, they're, they've been the party that's been hit by the fewest scandals in their candidate selection in this in this general election, and mm. um, and so there are good cases of that within Britain, but but somehow the, the the whole system in Westminster is, or, or or the party system is unable to is unable to move on. Um, mm. My hope let's, let's try and end this then in in a, in a positive. What's our, the dream of how this could work out, right? Mm-hmm. You end up with a hung parliament that relies on a Europeanish style weak alliance for the next 12 months after the election of a Labour minority administration or Labour plus SNP or some kind of accommodation between those two and the, and the Liberal Democrats. Takes Britain through to a second referendum in um, uh, summer or early autumn of, of, of 2020. That actually a calm politics and a understated and let's call it actually boring politics is actually not a bad politics. And then indeed, alongside some of those Brexit different bits and pieces, 
Um, we begin to see some effort to try to begin to decentralize power. The SNP would be willing to sanction a reform of the election system, as would um, as would the Liberal Democrats. And then also yeah. the Brexit process has brought, well, we can manage to get a million people on the streets of London, but this could be the biggest grassroots campaign that had ever been mounted in the UK were there to be a, a second referendum. Um, and so... Out of all of that, you can actually make quite a positive route forward, as I see it. Uh, it's a long shot to hope that all of those things will come to pass. But that's what we've got to cling to, I think, at the moment. Well, the, path, the path to that is currently still open, uh, and it may be for another eight or nine days. Um, I mean, it, OK, so if, if this were a famous John Worth flowchart, um, what percentage figure would you be putting on this? <laughs> I'm, I'm putting not... Uh, I'm, Somewhere I'm putting. 50%. I haven't. I haven't made a new Brexit diagram recently, but but I would put still the chances of a Conservative majority at fifty to sixty percent. Unfortunately, yeah. the chances you have an absolute nightmare scenario of everything's blocked, where you have Tories on one side, plus Labour, SNP, and uh, Liberal Democrats on the other, that they're exactly equal, and the DUP or, or um, holds the balance of power in the middle, maybe five to ten percent, which leaves you then with a kind of twenty or thirty percent chance that you. <laughs> end up with actually some passable and decent way forward um yeah um yeah. but but good well as said uh, earlier in the podcast i'm more optimistic now than i was a week ago so um <laughs> uh, let, let's keep working let's keep persuading people about the merits of tactical voting and hope that this in the end still can come to pass okay well i think that's a good good note on which to to end the podcast everybody get your get your supplies of barbiturates in for next week um whatever else you need to carry you through the the roller coaster of tension and emotion that will we, we'll be coming coming up this time next week, um, or, or, a, or a Thursday night next week. Um, and in the meantime, um, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, sorry, it's taken so long. No um, problem, and thanks really. for the invite. And um, yeah, let's see. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Going up the wrong way. Going to have to stop.